name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Just to the times, and hey, these times they are a change, and isn't that the truth? Uh, thank you again for uh, listening. Uh, for those of you who did uh, listen to my podcast and uh, go to recoveryguy.org and uh, uh, watch the blogs, of course, uh, we're, we're sort of um, in this in this mode of kind of getting our head around everything that's going on while staying uh, focused on recovery and wellness in our approach, uh, because for those of us in recovery, uh, and it's why I did uh, Things to Think on Part 1 and Part 2, and even the growth mindset uh, on my blog, and then and then being grateful on Thursday's blog, we need to keep our head around what's important, what's in front of us, what really matters. There's certain things, uh, many things in our life that are going to come and go, that are going to move in and move out in varying degrees of whether these people, circumstances, uh, opportunities. There's always going to be a, a changing world around us, uh, but learning how to uh, stay focused on our principles and and be sure of certain things and to have that firm foundation that is going to be critical to all that we do in representation of our personal recovery, right? So I had a, a great conversation with Slow Will over 40 years of personal recovery, and and Slow Will has um, been my sponsor since uh, my Jack, uh, uh, dear Jack, uh, passed away uh, of cancer a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, had a great conversation with uh, uh, with Will today. Then I had some time to uh, spend with my uh, my brother in recovery, Scotty Bricks, of course, uh, the uh, founder and uh, overseer of uh, Welcome Home uh, Sober Living in Southern California. And uh, Scotty and I had a great chance to chat on some things because there's a lot going on and a lot we have to address. And 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 whether you're Will at 40 plus years or me going on 34 years or Scotty on 13, we're all having to make adjustments. But our biggest concern has been what's going on with the new or relatively new person to recovery. Uh, in, in this whole thing of the, this new term that I just don't like at all, uh, social distancing. Uh, I like it. I dislike it on a number of different levels. Obviously, because we are social creatures, being distant to one another is really counterproductive to our DNA. I really believe that. So today's podcast is is really entitled, How Do We Practice Social Distancing Without Becoming Emotionally Disconnected? 
How do we do that? Is there is there a hard and fast rule, or is it just sort of figure out as you go? Right, distance learning is one thing if it's an if it's X's and O's, but when we're dealing with matters of the heart, how do we how do we do that? How do we take something that is so personal and so one on one as recovery is, and say, okay, now do it. But don't be together. How how do we do that? How do we how do we bridge that gap from taking something that is so dependent on at least for me dependent on a, a level of intimacy in connectivity, and yet I do it without being close to you. That's a hard thing to do. Uh, one of the one of the things that we have to learn how to overcome is to is to get through these times of difficulty and distance uh, without losing stride. Uh, I know one of the things that Will and I talked about on the phone today was uh, how do they maintain in Missouri their degree of meetings where people can come together, right? Like I do at Costco. I went to Costco yesterday. And 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 they did the six foot social distancing. They got the, the 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 lines on the floor, and they've got the the plexiglass screens up there. And 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 I understand all that. And then the lady said, "Hey, move back behind the line." And I thought I was behind the line, right? Laura's up in front of me at another line, and I'm behind her at another line. And this lady's trying to tell us where to move. And I said, "Lady, you got this glass between you and me." What's the deal? And she said, get used to the new normal. And I thought, no, no, I'm not going to get used to this. This can't be normal. It, it violates uh, our social dynamic of our society. We are designed to be together. And I understand that we need to practice certain things to protect ourselves and health. But my goodness, I believe that meetings are essential I believe that sh- there should be a way for us to get together. And I know in talking to Scotty today, I know uh, that uh, some of the, most of the meeting places, the Alano clubs in Southern California are closed down and they're relying on Zoom and other social media apps to have that degree of connectability. What Will said that he did, they went, they went according to the, um, the, the, uh, the county recommendation, which is, occupancy for a particular building. And, you know, and I'll go back to Costco. That's what they do at Costco as well. That's why we're in this line, and periodically a herd of us get to go in. And what they did, and I don't understand math, but what they've done is they've taken the overall square footage. They've they've created a six-foot diameter or distance and then they have said, divide that into each other, then that's how many people can be in this building at any given time while allowing for six feet of separation, right? Do the math, you can figure it out. So what Will said that they're doing while while the Alana Club itself stopped their particular group meetings, Will figured this formula out, and now they can have six feet of distance, and they figured out they can have meetings with 30 people in the meeting. 
So they get to the meeting place earlier and they clean everything down, disinfect it, have their meeting, and then clean and disinfect at the same time. That way they can have both worlds. They can understand uh, the need for that uh, separation, but still understand the essential need for a person going to a meeting. Now, I don't know how long you've been in recovery, but I've been at this thing for over 34 years. Personal recovery, I'll have 33 years, oh, 34 years of continual sobriety in April 25th of this year. But when I came in, I was so relieved that there were other people like me that I could touch, that I could reach, that I had proximity with. So I could make a human and emotional connection which is based on proximity. A little bit later on in the podcast, I'm just going to cover what is called the principle of proximity, right? Very, very important social dynamic to, to, uh, to who we are and what we do. Let me share a story with you that I'm so grateful that we did not have this separation or this physical fear or health. And I'm not, I'm not putting a value judgment on it. I understand why it's important, because we don't understand this whole coronavirus and its degree of effectiveness. I do know <clears throat> that approximately 60% of all cases, actually 53.6% of all cases in the United States, reported cases, are in New York, primarily in New York City. That's a huge number. So the other 40 what, uh, 46.4% of the country have the remaining cases. Very, very different dynamics. Do we still need to practice all these things they're practicing in New York and some of the other areas? I know when you watch the experts and listen to the experts, everybody's got an opinion on it. But I want to share a story with you and and just to help underscore the importance of, of maintaining some type of human connection and where possibly physical connection because it can be the matter of life and death. And that's why I would believe and champion that centers of recovery, Alano clubs and other meeting places are essential, right, to the well-being of individuals. Just like uh, I championed, even though I don't drink, my children drink and, and my wife drinks, they're not alcoholic, so you let them drink, Right. Um, but I know that uh, in Pennsylvania that have state-run liquor stores, the governor mandated that all these liquor stores be closed down. To me, as a person of recovery <clears throat> who understands that just because I got well, right, I'm not the reformed smoker that says, uh, I don't do it anymore, so you can't either. He's closed down all the liquor stores, and I think it's still true. But what about the alcoholic? Right? What about the fact that they view alcohol like a diabetic uh, would view insulin, right? And if these people don't drink every day or have a supply of alcohol, they could come under some physical harm, go into DTs or other areas of withdrawal and harm their harm themselves. They could go into an area of depression. And whereas the alcohol would decrease their suicidal ideology or tendencies, now they don't have that alcohol to take the edge off, 
So maybe a 357 is going to do the trick, right? There's so many things that could go on. So I think we have to be very careful when we dismiss how essential something is, right? And then for those of us in recovery, how do we get around it? How do we maintain that emotional connection that is required for recovery while we are socially distant? And I'm going to go back to the story. This time I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, It was 1986. I had been back in the rooms of recovery not very long, and and. I remember being at an afternoon meeting, the late lunch bunch at the turning point. And here I am at this meeting, and there was a fellow at a table in the room, and he looked very distraught. He was very distraught. And I went up to him, and I said, hey, man, what's going on? How can I help you? And he looked at me with tears in his eyes extremely sad, and he said, I just found out that I have AIDS and I'm going to die. Have you ever heard? It It, it stopped me. I just found out I had AIDS and I'm going to die. He was probably 22 or 23 years old. He was much younger than me. I was 32 at the time. I just found out I had AIDS and I'm going to die. And I said, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's terrible. Are you sure? And he he was confident. And I said, what can I do for you? And he said, "Uh, would you give me a hug? Now, mind you, this was back in 1986. We knew that the gay population were the most prevalent to receive it. And we also didn't think there was a cure. And there was a lot of fear around it because we weren't even sure of how you contracted it. So there was this, all this going on, and as this person is sharing with me the heartache of their life, they're asking me for a hug. And thank God I was able to work through my fear in just a matter of seconds, because how do you not hug someone when they're faced with that fear? I'm so glad There was not a thing called social distancing where we had to, you know, almost like put a a scarlet letter on a person suffering from AIDS and we had to stay away and we couldn't hug them, right? Because I don't know what that hug did for that young man that day. After I hugged him, he walked out the door and I, I never saw him again. I found out a few weeks later he died. I know what that hug did for me. I know that for a moment, because I wasn't afraid to be close, that I was able to not feel guilt down the road when I found out that this young man died. 
So how do we bridge that gap? I'm not saying that we go and we embrace everyone, but where do we draw that line? Where do we say, you know, is, is, is the cure or the recommended dosage worth what we could lose while we're waiting to understand? I, I don't know what the answer is, but I know that I will have more of a tendency to reach out than I will to draw back. Heck, if they'll let me into a Costco or let the Xfinity guy come to my house and, and reposition my router modem, why can't I go and be a, a part of something somewhere to make a difference in the lives of other people? I know one of the things that Scotty was telling me that they were doing because with, um, with Welcome Home Sober Living, their residential program, and, and, and they deal with uh, women and their children in a proximity, and they all live in, in these homes and, and, and encourage each other. So there's a lot of social gathering there. That's the means of recovery. And I know that Scotty and Melissa have uh, guidelines based on the county that they have to go to, and, and, and these participants in these programs have to attend certain meetings and do different things that require uh, social connection and contact, right? That they have to have a way to get around it. But even from the social aspect of it, even aside from the X's and O's legal requirements that the house has, there has to be a, a social application to this recovery. Now, being a person who was involved in social model recovery uh, for a number of years, matter of fact, when I when I first was uh, getting my degree, I um, I remember working at the um, Casa de San Bernardino, which was a um, uh, in the department I worked in was a um, court referred nonviolent drug offender. I think it was a first offense, and. Uh, so I worked with those clients one-on-one, and then I did some internship at uh, St. John of God Healthcare Services, which was all social model recovery. And then, and then I worked for an outfit where we were uh, dual diagnosis, right, where you had a, um, a psychiatric, uh, diagnosed psychiatric condition, uh, but you also had a dependency problem. And, and that was also a kind of a medical model of, of, a, of a social model. It was a combination, highly regulated with uh, psychiatrists and, and, uh, and uh, medication dosages and so on. But we did it in a social model format. So there was that, um, there was almost like a, um, a family developed in, in, in this area of recovery. And, and the social model recovery approach is, is really started back when AA got going uh, back in the early 30s when, when we would bring people, when people would be brought into homes as, as a way of helping them and helping them recover. Um, so, so why is it so important that we don't 
forget the aspects of the need to be socially connected. Now, Friday's podcast are going to be some of the things that we can do to make up for what we don't have, right? Because I I want to believe that eventually when we come to a greater understanding of, of how to cope with this and there's a and there's a um, an antidote in place, right? We can back away from all of this fear and 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 distance conditioning, right? That we can get back to some degree of normalcy. I do know that things are going to change um, long term. Hopefully, those changes will be limited, so we don't lose the dynamic of one on one and and the the closeness. Which brings me to my next point. Really, kind of cool. Uh, I found this um, earlier. Uh, I found this earlier today, and. And it was pretty excellent work, and and it's basically called the uh, uh, the principle of proximity. Kind of a kind of a cool thing, right? Kind of a cool title. But it was the principle of proximity, and the principle of proximity is the tendency for people to form social relationships with individuals who are physically close to them, right? A social relationship with individuals who are physically closer to them. Makes sense, right? Proximity, closeness, degree, but it's a tendency to form a relationship. You know, when you talk about someone who is walking you through recovery as a sponsor or confidant or a or a mentor, um, they are um, hopefully uh, in a particular uh, proximity uh, to you to help uh, that one-on-one connection to give you a greater degree of closeness and comfort and security. But what does proximity mean? It means how close an object or person is physically to you. Someone sitting next to you on a, on a bench is closer in proximity than a person sitting three rows away. Maybe three rows, rows away is the new norm. I don't know. But understanding what proximity is. The principles of proximity shows that individuals are more likely to form social relationships, right? We um, were much more likely to befriend our neighbors or coworker because we are exposed to them more than a person who lives further away, right? This makes sense. And this is so important in recovery because I say it before and I say it again. We got sick apart, but we get well together. You know what I'm saying? We get sick apart, but we get well together. 
And I think that's so important for us to understand. And it's why I think we need to make sure we don't lose this closeness, that we don't lose this this ability or desire to help each other and to be a part of each other and to not lose that dynamic that requires me being close to you, you being close to me, to embrace and an emotional hug of wellness and just to comfort and to know that someone is there and they're close because closeness helps deepen that emotional root of comfort and security. Aren't you more secure when you're close to the people that you care for or the people that you want to care for you? Of course we are. Remember, no man is an island unto himself. And we have to make sure that we are staying as close as we possibly can given the, given the restrictions that we have because it will reflect our overall ability to become well. I'm convinced of that. You know, distance learning may be effective when I'm trying to get my degree in the X's and O's, right? When I'm studying for an exam, I, I know JJ, our podcast engineer, and, and even uh, uh, John, uh, our um, web administrator, they're doing online courses that really don't require an emotional attachment. So doing things from a distance standpoint is no big deal. The likelihood is neither of them will ever meet their professors. They don't really need to. They can just see them on a video. But for the person who needs to get well from the inside out and to really know someone cares and is there for them through it all, proximity is everything. So for now... How do we practice social distancing without becoming emotionally disconnected? Because I am convinced recovery has a major component of emotional connection. And the further I am away from someone, the less likely I am to have that connection occur. So on Friday, with the checkup, we're going to be discussing ways to practice social distancing and increasing our emotional connection. What can we do? How can we make this difficult situation and challenging time a positive outcome? Again, what's the other side of the coin? Because you know and I know there is one. There is no such thing as a one-sided coin, and there's no such thing right now as we're going through 
this uncertain time. Hey, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for being a part of this podcast. Always make sure that you check on Recovery Guy podcast. Go look in our archives, see what we've talked about. Go back to my um, my uh, podcast. I think it was back in September on 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 uh, social media recovery and some of the challenges to that. Right, and and go back and look at last week on on uh, uh, things to think on part one and part two. Look for my blogs. Uh, on Wednesday and Thursday at recoveryguy.org and keep sharing, keep caring, keep giving me your suggestions because that's what makes this thing work. I want to thank you again for joining me today. My name is Robert and I am the Recovery Guy. I was trying to do everything.